Hey kids, Rob and Zach have another call to action for all of our fans that are slaves to the... What? I can't say that? To all our fans that are subscribers to the streaming service Disney+. Plus. Back in May, we discussed the Disney Channel original movie Pixel Perfect, which is now available to stream through Disney+. Plus. If you ever find your TV not in use, put on Pixel Perfect and set it up to play on loop. If you're leaving to travel for the holiday season, have Pixel Perfect play continuously to keep your cats and squatters company. And remember, only you can prevent forest fires. Nope, that is the wrong card. Only you can show Disney how much Pixel Perfect is truly loved. podcast about cinematic oddies where we discuss any media that is too bizarre abnormal, or off kilter for contemporary audiences occasionally these projects gel most times they crash hard into the realm of obscurity join us as we delve into the cult classic swamp i'm zach and i want my name to be spaghetti <laughs> and this week on cinemodities we are starting a new series i'm always excited for this this series we are calling or I guess I should say Zach is calling because Rob is still on probation over here. December Plus. Is that correct, Zach? Yes, sir. Okay. And this, of course, comes from a combination of Disney Plus and December. I think it's only appropriate, now that I've described this title, so I could not only prove to myself and the audience I know what we're discussing this month, that I give it to Zach and say... Is this truly retaliation for the fourth month of sketch comedy? <laughs> no, Rob, this can never be retaliation. This is, this is, this makes you, you, you don't got learned after this. But, ah, uh, I will say this was informative, but it was not entertainingly informative. I was bored for the most part. But really? You're right, Zach, I learned some things, I guess. <laughs> Oh boy, folks! This is gonna be a uh, this is gonna be a fun discussion. For for once, Rob is on the defense. It's not me being there. Like Rob, what the hell is this nonsense? It's nice. RC, RC Glow, essentially Disney Plus, the incandescent yeah. streaming service. There you go. <laughs> RC Glow in store soon. No. Yes. Why would a consumer choose an incandescent beverage? RC Cola. The incandescent beverage. You know, any chemical that's going to make RC glow is going to be toxic. That's for finance to figure out. No, it's not. Look at the sheet. Well, it's not for marketing. Well, you're right. So we don't have to worry about it. <laughs> okay, the movie we're talking about is Waking Sleeping Beauty, just in case uh, you don't know what that is. It is a documentary from 2009 documenting the renaissance of Disney feature animation when Michael Eisner took over along with Jeffrey Katzenberg. And basically, it displays how the film division kind of climbed from like the depths of the black cauldron all the way to the triumphs of the lion king and learning all the trials and tribulations that happened to the animation department of disney from things like oliver and company little mermaid beauty and the beast all the way up to i think what aladdin and then lion king 
And you have all these sort of characters that if I guess this is the part that's weird in this conversation for me is that I love this sort of just like inside baseball of Disney corporate politics. And I have to realize I am a strange ass person sometimes. I, I want to stop you there, Zach, because I'm so glad you bring this up. I, I wanted you to introduce this concept before I did to save a little of my face. But yes, Zach is one of those strange people that is really interested in Disney. I don't think this has ever been hidden on Cinemodities before or Knights of Vader. This is just a, a feature of Zach. I've known it about it about Zach for years. He loves this, like he said, inside baseball of Disney. I want to put it in reference for everybody. One of my notes for this movie, I'm going to read it verbatim. Aha, I get it. This is Zach's version of Rob talking about math. <laughs> this is it. This is it, Zach. We finally found this isn't the retaliation to the sketch comedy Fort month. This is a bigger, more passionate, intellectual level of topic for you. I know that you live, eat, and breathe some of this movie industry stuff. And even though I think maybe both of these things have been implicit on this podcast, that's what I love. I love talking about weird math stuff. And nobody in the world cares about it, especially <laughs> not my years of students. And this is the, this is the trade-off, Zach. So that's why I don't want to come off even though it might sound like it, I don't want to come off as too pessimistic. Because even though this documentary was boring as hell to me, I understand that you're passionate about it, and that's what I'm ready for in this episode. Like, <laughs> like let's do it. Why should we care about this history of Disney from, what, 74 to 92? Something like that? Well, it, it, it's a range. It's it's yes. There's some stuff from the '70s in there, but it's mostly 1984 to 1994. That's that's the main. Focus. Okay. 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 You so know, there's some. I want I want nobody to skip this episode. The audience and me, we're together. We're surrogates on this one. We have no idea why we should care about history of Disney, Zach, and we're ready for you to enlighten us. Well, the reason why it's, I guess, we should say the part of this series being a December plus. Is that we're, the point of this episode wasn't to punish Rob or to kind of like shove my interest down his throat? It was to give context going into this month as into the corporate culture at Disney, how they operate. This is kind of like the like again, considering that Rob is a teacher, a professor, he can understand the idea when you give your students some beforehand reading that kind of like greases the skids of like, okay, this is what the topic of the lecture is going to be today. Assuming and, they read it, yes. Well, that's what I mean. Rob at least read the, did his homework, so that's a plus for me. That doesn't usually happen. And that's what kind of you need this film so you kind of get the idea as to why this company is so anal retentive and makes bizarre-ass decisions half the time that you go, oh, that doesn't make sense. Then you realize, oh, this decision is being made in a unilateral way because of an ego. Mm. And that's the only reason why this decision is being made. And okay. I think that this is more here to it's an entire episode of context. And I guess yes. that's maybe the best way to put this. Like, I absolutely love this. I would, I think like every time, ever since I've seen this film, I've always ranked it. in one of my like top 20 favorite films of all time, because it's, I think again, like Rob said, it's no secret that I love inside baseball, Disney nonsense. I am definitely a student of that sort of just 
history. I know a lot of people are, and I know there's an insane a lot of there's an insane amount of just subjective opinions on what what has happened in this time frame, mm-hmm. and then never mind the the fallout from this time frame because I think the more interesting, no, not the more interesting, but I think the the fallout of this story is probably just as interesting, if not more so. And they would never cover that because that's when really all hell started to break loose at Disney and not in a bad way, but you really, that's where you kind of, again, I wouldn't even know how to, I'm going to get into a little bit in this episode to give kind of the follow up as to what happens to all this. Cause this film basically or documentary basically ends with, Oh, the wheels were coming off the cart. Cue credits, and yes. they're all singing a happy song. La la, zippity doo da, zippity a, my yeah. oh my. And it's like, no, like if you know the history <laughs> of what was going on this time, it's not zippity doo da. Like they had, like, like on a corporate level, the company was was like starting to fall apart. And that's, and you kind of even to this day, we're still kind of feeling the uh, reverberations of some of these decisions made almost God thirty years ago. I feel, I feel that we are getting very much ahead of ourselves. Because the end credits of this movie includes the only clip I feel is worthwhile in the entire hour and a half of it. Uh, so so I get what you're saying, though, Zach. This is important to you. This is um, <laughs> very interesting to you. Uh, how do you want to attack this? Because clearly we've established that this is co- we're coming at this from different levels of interest, different levels of understanding completely. And I love the way you framed it. This is an episode of context. And I think that's a really good place to start because it should be, at least I think, it should be made known to our audience that while we will be covering some documentaries in upcoming episodes, it's not all going to be the history of Disney, correct? No, no, not no, not in this. No, this is probably be. This is the most like direct, concentrated yes. version of yes. of of any sort of conversation I would have about corporate Disney culture on this podcast or anything. I think anywhere else. I don't think it ever gets more concentrated than this. Um, it's again, no. I guess my own context of the context was that I remember when this <laughs> this got released on DVD in 2010. I remember reading about this. And being like, oh, that sounds interesting. Like, I've always loved behind the scenes stuff. And again, this was like right as I was beginning college. I had no really formal education in film studies, more just like ground level stuff. Again, this was like a few months after Eraserhead. So this is when my eyes were really kind of just still, like my pupils were dilated. And I got this for Christmas in 2010 and I watched it. And I was kind of like, oh, this was neat. I enjoyed that. Yep. And I really didn't know, again, it was interesting though, but I didn't really do anything else with it because I really didn't have anybody to even talk to about it. Cause Sal certainly didn't care about this sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and after that, there was really nobody else to talk to, but I think it was the next year. I think it was the following year for Christmas. I discovered a book called Disney war and I'm looking at it right now on my desk. It's a book by James, I think B Stewart. I have my glasses on, so I can't see that far. And what it is, is old that man, it, yeah, God, it's really. I found a great hair today, folks. I'm getting scared. Um, Zach and I had an in-depth discussion for almost two hours about aging prior to this. <laughs> this, this we, we, had, we had an in-depth discussion, folks. That might be one of the most profound things Rob and I have ever. We might have figured out the perfect way to break up with a woman. We might have figured that out. We might, like, in all honesty, like if you've ever seen the episode of Seinfeld where Jerry and uh, George figure out how to swap. Uh, the swap when it comes to two women living together. Rob and I have done the equivalent of that when it comes to breaking up with somebody. 
Am I wrong? Brain, brainstorming works. It it works. <laughs> and we also figured out the perfect real life incarnation of the Cinematis restaurant. Oh, that yeah, that that came pretty early on. <laughs> that was profound, folks. Like that was kind of what, Rob and I are kind of like shocked at ourselves. I feel it like we're just long. teasing the audience at this point. <laughs> no, we'll get to that eventually because we got to flesh that out some more. We can't we can't get that. It's still like it's still kind of soft in the middle. We got to wait till that fight kind of bakes a little bit more. True. True. Um, but no, getting back to that, though, the, the Disney War book, essentially, it, it was a book written at the time when Michael Eisner was being thrown out of the Disney company in the mid-2000s. Okay. And what it is, it, it's an, I don't know, I think it's an unofficial account of all these events. Before I get into that, Disney, Disney War, the book, is more the follow-up to uh, Waking Sleeping Beauty than anything else, even though Waking Sleeping Beauty came out five years after the book was published. Hmm. But the movie Waking Sleeping Beauty, like I said, it's chronicling the events of Disney animation during the night from 84 to 94, yes. and just the creative struggle of making films like Oliver and Company, uh, The Great Mouse Detective, uh, Little Lion, Mermaid, Little Mermaid, all those. Yeah, Black Cauldron I, gets mentioned, which sure. I enjoyed. <laughs> okay, Rob. Okay, because I'm I am I live in the weeds when it comes to this topic. Oh yeah. And, con and considering that you always are able to give much better abridged synopsis of films than I do, do you want to describe this to the audience? Because I would imagine the majority of the audience is going to side with you when it comes to this. Do you want to describe the events of the film? Because I feel like I'm going to immediately spend like half an hour talking about like Jeffrey Katzenberg. <laughs> okay, so you're looking for my summary of Waking yes. Sleeping Beauty. Perfect. I, I think I can you. do this. I think I can do this. So Waking Sleeping Beauty is a solid documentary. Don't get me wrong there. It is a really, really solid documentary with some soft spots that I'm going to bring up about the events of Disney's animated film studio. They tie into the non-animated portion of it. Uh, apparently, Splash, at one point, was the biggest opening for Disney ever. F fucking never knew that. That's crazy to me. What's your name? It's hard to say in English. Well, just say in your language. All right. My name is... Hey, how about those Knicks? But this movie goes on, as Zach said, to show the trials and tribulations of the animation department at Disney as they went through many ups and downs, troughs and peaks of making great movies, of disappointing movies, of canned movies, of reworked movies, and things of that nature. We also get to see Alex Trebek with a mustache. God damn! That's one of my notes. Alex Trebek with a mustache. God damn. <laughs> Did that sum it up pretty well, Zach? Uh, that was, uh, okay, yeah. The, I was expecting to be a little bit more, uh, what's the word, pronged. But no, I'm, I'm content no, with that No, I mean, that, that is what this was about. And it is very interesting, but very boring. <laughs> I wouldn't say boring. I'd say dry. I only appreciated this after it was over, <laughs> to be honest. Like, I... Was just like, oh my God, come on. Because so, I guess I, I do want to say that here. So much of this movie was frustrating to me, especially in the first 30 minutes, because this movie I felt was just about, hey, look at these people whose names you've heard. They're in this movie. Like, 
in like the first few minutes, it's like John Lasseter's the cameraman. You know his name, right? Hey, Tim Burton is animating at Disney. It has nothing to do with what we're talking about. We're going to show a shot of him and show his name on the screen. And I was just like, I don't care. I don't care how famous Disney was. I know how famous Disney was. And I think that was the, the start of my distaste for this film because it was just so much like, hey, look at this. Didn't you know these facts? And while I didn't know the facts, I thought it was almost like forcing them into my face. And it, it, it was angering me because I, I wanted them presented in a more organic way. I don't think it's meant to – it's not supposed to be famous. I think what the point they're trying to get at is this was a time – like again, you think of all these names that are – well, not John Laster anymore. They've ruined him. But, yeah. it's, but it's the idea that this was Disney back in the early 80s where you had all these super talented people – and they were at the bottom of the totem pole. Like you had the yep, whole idea. Yep. You have Tim, like Tim Burton. Again, maybe not now, but think about it. Tim Burton would go on to do all these movies. Like again, the high of Tim Burton's career is Batman '89. And yet, mm -hmm. at one point, Tim Burton was sitting in a little office and they're sketching. I think. Yeah. I think it's supposed to be the. It's not like it's supposed to give you perspective. It's the fact that look what was going. What look at what the company was in 1980, early 80s. Mm. Because I, I took it as name dropping, as egregious it is, name dropping. It is name dropping because those, like, if even like some of the Disney animators, like I've heard a lot of these names before, like Truesdale, Kirk, all of them. But even like I, as a Disney nerd, has a, have a hard time like piecing them, like matching them with the films they've directed over the years. But someone okay. like Lasseter and Burton, like everybody knows who they are. Like you say, Tim Burton. 95% yeah. of the people who've ever watched the movie go, oh, I know who that is. Mm -hmm. Less people, John Lasseter, but it's it's that idea. It's perspective. Like even and I get it. This is a, a movie for nerds. This is not this is not a film made for mass consumption. Yeah. It's because, a documentary, yeah. Yeah. Because even like the very beginning of the film, you have Ron Miller come out and Ron the context to Ron Miller was he was Walt's son-in-law. And once mm -hmm. Walt died, he kind of not immediately, but within a few years, he was made CEO of the company, and him and Roy E. Disney, Walt's nephew, always butted heads. And you, the fact that he, sh like, on, like, like him and the okay, the guy who who's hosting the very beginning of this, Randy, the fact that they're starting this off, and the CEO comes walking out of the door, the very first thing that they're doing, and then that was all again stock, not stock, but that was all just. Sure. Uh, Oh god what's the word for that Home movie footage And it's just kind of like the oh wow The fact that that wouldn't Again if they were making this Like think of all the the, the home movie footage They had back during the, the late 80s early 90s There was never going to be a point Where Michael Eisner came out of a building all of a sudden I think yeah. it's meant it's meant to give perspective in that, And I know a couple of times they, they highlight that like Oh the Disney animation building Was like it smelled like linoleum And pencil shavings And then Michael Eisner threw them all out To make offices for Dustin Hoffman and Bette Midler Mm-hmm and I think that's that's what the first kind of like five, ten minutes of this film is trying to get at, is that it's trying to give you a perspective as to what the company looked like before Michael Eisner came in and then what it looked like after ten years of his reign okay. over it. Okay. Again, I, I, I do believe in that first ten minutes that you're discussing, um, <laughs> we get to see a clip from the Aristocats. Yes. And while that clip is playing... Whoever is narrating that portion of the movie says, sweet, harmless animation for children. 
<laughs> and that that's it. We we both know on Cinemodity, Zach and I love the Aristocats. It's one of our famous films, favorite films we've ever discussed. Correct? Everybody, <laughs> Correct. everybody. But okay, I'm okay. A drunk goose. <laughs> yeah, yes, that's the thing that happens in that movie. People <laughs> go back and listen to the episode where Zach finally discovered Death Wish solves all the problems in life. Uh, uh, but no, like okay, that's the thing that's hard for me to talk about this because like I watched this, okay. and this is kind of what between this and the Disney War book, that's what really gave me the insights that why people listen to the stupid Star Wars podcast, and maybe as to why they hear me the why they like listening to me on this podcast is that this is what gave me those insights into like, Oh, this is how Disney was doing stuff. And then I have even the information as to what happened before this, when it, cause even the film doesn't even harp on it that much, but the whole green mail scheme of the corporate Raider coming in and trying to break up Disney like that alone is like, I'm surprised no one's ever tried to make that into a story other than the fact that I imagine Disney doesn't want that that story really widely publicized. Yeah. It, it doesn't fit with the image. I think it's something we said before. I, I don't think it's the image. It's the idea that just how close the company was to like being not destroyed, but what was going to happen was that they, like in any sort of corporate raider. And if you don't know what that is, think of uh, what's his name, Michael Douglas in wall street. They go in, they buy it. They, they have a hostile takeover huh. of a company and they break it apart and they sell it. For, they sell the pieces for a profit. Yeah, exactly. But isn't, isn't that, isn't breaking apart the image not good for the image? <laughs> no, but I mean, like, but but they were able to because what the, the, the okay context time was that this film kind of sits there highlights that because we talk about when they they, they kind of touch on it with Roy E Disney and Roy E Disney was Walt's nephew, the son of Roy Disney, who was mm -hmm. Walt's partner, and that really. If you know your Disney history, Walt was the creative imagination, and it was his brother who had to figure out how to pay for all this. Like, Walt would sit to come out of his office and be like, Roy, I had this great idea. We're going to sit there, do this, this, and that. And it'd be like, I'm, I look forward to you figuring out how we're going to be able to afford this. And then Walt <laughs> would go back into his office. And, and the joke was, that's why Roy was bald, was that he was always pulling his hair out, trying to figure out how to sit there uh, – pay for his his brother Walt's ideas. Yeah. And so what happened was you have back in the early 80s and they mention it here in Waking Sleeping Beauty. Roy E Disney got mad that Ron Miller, his cousin-in-law and the board of directors weren't doing what he liked. Like Roy, he got mad and he walked okay. away and what Roy and again it's been a while since I've read this and heard the stories about it so I'm probably again don't take everything I'm saying with with don't take it as gospel. Yeah, I have that, I have no notes on this, folks. So. No, he he wouldn't, folks. You have you have to go really deep dive. This is a deep dive. Um, you have to really like this sort of stuff. I didn't get yeah. these research texts. <laughs> no, Rob, you didn't get a YouTube video sent to you like like an hour ago saying read this beforehand. Can we delay the recording by an hour? Uh, because when Roy E. Disney resigned, he had another cohort who I forget. I think that, I think it was somebody named. Sid, 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 somebody, Sid Bass, maybe. I think that's the name. I could be wrong. What they did was they started playing with the stock, with 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 buying up stocks, or they, or they were selling their shares. And what happened was the corporate raider saw this and wanted to take advantage to a bunch of stocks being flooded into the marketplace. So this corporate raider started buying up as much Disney stock as possible. 
and was like, I'm going to buy the company and break it apart and sell it for pieces. Again, sell the theme parks to one group, sell the film catalog to another, sell the animation studio to somebody else. And the big concern was considering that the – think about it too. This was back in the early 80s. The Walt Disney Company was only around for about four, about 40 to 50 years at this point. It wasn't the company that you think of today. So the big issue came was that Ron Miller, who was not any sort of, I don't want to say business savvy, he was a smart guy. It's kind of what happens to him is kind of sad in all this. It's he's the one who kind of ends up paying for all this, despite the fact that he's the one who a didn't cause any of it, and b dug the company out of the hole that Roy E. Disney dug it into. Was that he's the one who started consulting with people, saying how do you how do you chase off a corporate raider? And how you chase off a corporate raider is you have to load the company with an insane amount of debt. You got to make the company unprofitable instantaneously. And the only way to do that is just like what they, what Disney was doing was uh, back in early eighties was acquiring all these different entities. They were buying every single company they could afford buying Mm -hmm. just, they wanted to choke on debt. And eventually they did that. And then the corporate raider came to them, and what the term is, green mail, said, I know what you're doing. If you want to make it easier for yourself that you don't go bankrupt by doing if I, if I don't take you over and destroy you, bankruptcy will. I'm going to say, buy the shares back for me at a premium. And that's what happened. So between all the debt they had to amass, they had to pay a premium to this guy to get all to get all the shares back. And then by the end of all this, because at this point Disney was a publicly traded company, yep. Wall Street, the proverbial Wall Street, wanted a head on a platter. And guess what? Ron Miller had to go because he was the head of the company. And as we all know, the captain of the ship has to go down with the sinking ship. Despite the fact that he didn't cause any of this and he's the one who who dug them out of the problem. And that's kind of been the tragic story of Ron Miller was that he was he, unfortunately he was the most competent person in the room. Okay. And yet at that time, Roy would now with all these shares of stock out there, Roy E. Disney bought himself back into the, the, the board of directors and he brought in Michael Eisner and Frank Wells. And that's the context to where we pick up in Waking Sleeping Beauty. And that's why you walk in there and you have, and eventually Michael, because Mike, before this, Michael Eisner was the head of Paramount. And he's, and the reason why they hired him, because it, it, it was true, Disney was stale at this time. Like, like the highest grossing film Disney had had in the last 10 years previous to Michael Eisner was like Herbie the Love Bug number three. <laughs> okay. So Michael Eisner was brought in because he'd done things like he'd signed deals with George Lucas and Steven Spielberg for Raiders of the Lost Ark. He really knew, again, he was the head of Paramount. He knew what was going on. But at the same time, though, they did want somebody, like the documentary mentions, somebody more fiscally minded to balance out Michael Eisner's creative aspirations. Mm -hmm. And Frank Wells was the person that was the more steady hand on the steering wheel. Yeah, yeah, the documentary makes that uh, abundantly clear, I feel. Yes, and then you have the, I don't want to say the third wheel in all this, maybe the fourth wheel, in that Jeffrey Katzenberg. Sure. Katzenberg being Eisner's assistant that was brought over from Paramount, and he was given the animation studio to rehabilitate it. And a large component of this film is the animation department's friction with Jeffrey Katzenberg. Yes. 
and you have the corporate culture conflicting with the artistic culture of years past at Disney, where there's some really great, again, I'm saying this, this is very subjective, folks. You have some great subjective, I'm sorry, you have some great anecdotes about how Jeffrey Katzenberg gets in there and says, I'm not concerned about winning the Academy Award. I want to win the Bank of America Award. Yes. And that's one of those things, like I said earlier in the discussion, we are feeling those edicts to this day in the Walt Disney Company. Because that's why you get things like Avengers Endgame instead of more, I don't want to say meticulously crafted movies but that's why everything now is just let's make as much money as possible and who cares if any of this has staying power mm-hmm. like the, that sort of corporate philosophy being instilled in like 1985 is being felt as of now in 2019 still yeah it's kind of crazy you know and uh, you would always hear, oh, you want to uh, differentiate your portfolio with your stocks. You want to have as many different outlets to make money as possible. And now with Hollywood, it's just like, nope, we want that one big franchise movie that's going to make us billions and billions of dollars forever. It's crazy. It's a total yep. switch of what everybody thought was was the norm for a while. And that's, and that's what it is. And that's why, like... Again, people sit there, again, I think I've mentioned a couple times now, and I don't say this to like toot my horn, but people really like what goes on on the Star Wars podcast because we do look at it more in a, uh, I don't want to say a business sense, but we look at it trying to, again, we try to understand what they're doing with Star Wars from the mindset of the corporate decisions. And if it weren't for Waking Sleeping Beauty, I don't think I would have the mindset I do now. Because I've seen this thing how many like I've seen this movie countless times, and every time I watch it, even though I know what's going to happen, I am glued and I am mesmerized by what I'm seeing. Good, good for you. Yes, I guess. <laughs> no, because I think there's there, there's so much to learn here because you do get that mindset of again. Jeffrey, I can, I, we cannot underestimate Jeffrey Katzenberg's in, like, impact in Hollywood because when he eventually left Disney, he started DreamWorks, SKG, Spielberg, Katzenberg, Geffen, and mm-hmm. that's where we got DreamWorks. And with DreamWorks, you get things like Saving Private Ryan, you get Shrek, you get all these different things that fundamentally altered Hollywood. Like, again, in Shrek, Lord Farquaad is modeled after Michael Eisner. Oh, okay. And that, I hate and that the, movie. <laughs> I like the first Shrek. All the sequels are garbage. I don't like any Shrek. You don't like any Shrek? Any none? No Shreks. <laughs> you're you're anti Green Ogres. Um, not necessarily. Just anti the the movies. <laughs> <laughs> no, but Shrek like, itself. Michael Myers doing the Shrek voice isn't bad, but everything else is pretty bad. Donkey. Yeah, that donkey's pretty bad. Like Eddie Murphy, come on, <laughs> come on, <laughs> come on. <laughs> uh, but no, that's that's what the the part of this that why I made Rob watch this. All right, I guess I guess my question is to you, Rob, because mm-hmm. I could talk for this could be a solo episode if I want to. This could be me sitting oh, there talking about Disney oh, history. I know. So are there any parts of this that resonated with you or anything that really kind of uh, ticked you off? I'm glad you asked me this, Zach, because I do have some um, some highs, some lows, some questions about this, because I went into this, as I said at the start, 
even though I was bored to tears throughout it, and it was about something I really don't care about learning, I knew that Zach loves it, and I have to I have to get behind that. You know, if anybody's passionate about anything, that's a win-win situation. So if I can learn something from this, that's great. I'm going to start by saying one of my notes is literally just the words, Connie Chung. We get to see Connie Chung in this movie. Yes. At the interview. That's great. I have no question about that. I just wanted to point that out. That we get to see Connie that's Chung. More, that's a highlight more than anything noteworthy. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. So I loved that. Um, but I did want to actually ask you about that. In the beginning of this movie, I would say the first half an hour, there becomes a, a point where the story kinds to start to get the sense of Disney was uh, hiring creators to give them the opportunity to make exactly what they wanted to make. And I love that idea. I think people with creative visions should be given creative freedom. But was this really the case? Every time I watch a documentary, I'm always kind of concerned, you know, is it just flair for the documentary, like anything Bill Maher's ever done? Or is it like a true documentary in, in the sense that they're actually giving us good information? And that's kind of where I think this question and a lot of my questions are going to come from. Um, they talk about just hiring people and say, hey, you got an idea? Go for it in kind of the the dark period, I believe. This was very early on in the movie, I guess, to maybe give yeah. you a sense of when it was. Was this the case? Did they really give – did Disney give that trust to their creators? I think it – okay. That I'm glad you brought that part up because I was when I was rewatching it, I was trying to get – because it's weird. Because right before that sequence or scene – you get a part they're talking about when they started reissuing movies on VHS. Yes. Yes. And I was trying to discern. It's like, oh, what does this have to do with, with like, how does that tie in? Because in the titles they, they talk about, like certain ideas were brought in. I think the thing was they were open to ideas. They want, they wanted people to come in with ideas. I don't think it was like, okay, here's a, like, okay, you pitched Pocahontas. Here's a check for $15 million. Come back in a couple of years. I don't think it was that. Mm -hmm. I think before, like, what they, okay. They were accelerating their animation schedule from one film every four years to a film a year. So you have to really have a lot of ideas. Yeah. And that's what it was. So like, the, the, the thing they mentioned was the gong show approach almost, where that you could go in and pitch okay. an idea and it could be like, okay, like they said, one person pitched Pocahontas, another one pitched, again, something like The Lion King. And that's kind of what it was, was that like if you had an idea and you had kind of like a story treatment for it, they would hear you out. They would give you the meeting to present yourself. Whereas prior, if you had an idea, it was, okay, very nice, move along, get back to your okay. desk. Okay, interesting. But going back to the validity of this whole thing, and I think this is why, again, coming from my very specific perspective on this, is this film, from what I've read, and who knows, because this film is kind of like a major hallmark in a lot of stories, articles, based on this time period of Disney. Okay. Is that it seems to be uncharacteristically candid in what happened. And I think that's what makes this so unique because this film was officially released by Disney. You can still buy you, it, it's available mm. on Disney Plus. That was when they were releasing all the films available a couple of weeks ago. Like, oh, check out all these titles. They had all these cute little like thumbnails of like things like Pixel Perfect or Avengers or Star Wars or insert any Disney animated film here. This was one of them. 
And the thing that makes this so unique is this is Disney peeking into a time period of its past and actually talking about it, never mind publicly releasing it. Okay. And that is unheard of. Mm, I didn't Disney, think about that perspective, but yeah, that's an interesting point. Disney never lets people go back and look into like it's dirty laundry. And <laughs> they're possibly even more guarded now about that than they were in the past. Because like even like Star Wars, there was supposed to be a making of The Force Awakens book, and that got canceled because they don't want anybody knowing anything that happens. All the stuff that happens is rumor mill exclusively. Yep. And for even though Yes, this film, when it was made, is about an era that was the the regime was gone by that point. It was still that there are still some remnants in the company, and it wasn't that long ago. Like when this film was being made, it was like two thousand seven eight, and the story basically ends around nineteen ninety four. So you're only talking about like a thirteen year mm-hmm. break in in the story. And that's what's kind of fascinating is that D- Disney does not touch anything about this, but at the same time, too, This is by no means a pessimistic film about Disney. This is about their creative triumphs. All the dirty laundry that bookends it is just slightly hinted about, and that's it. Yeah, it's enough for them to be able to roll over and say, hey, in the grand scheme, with what we've done, it doesn't matter. Exactly. And that's why I say, like, the stuff that happens before this film and then after it is the juicy part of the story. Okay. Because, again, even what happens afterwards is – okay, how do I do this the most condensed way possible? Jeffrey Katzenberg – they said I love the one line. Jeffrey Katzenberg resigned. No, Jeffrey Katzenberg, like, walked out, and when he signed his original contract, he had, like, a gold – he had, like – he didn't have a gold parachute. He had a, like, triple platinum parachute. <laughs> okay. and, and what happened was he didn't walk out. Eisner fired him. Oh. And that's been one of the biggest contention contentions in Disney history was who who said what did uh, did Katzenberg resign or did Eisner fire him because okay. if Katzenberg resigned he's not entitled to his platinum parachute yep but if Eisner fired him he did and what happened was eventually they uh, Eisner I'm sorry Katzenberg sued Eisner and the Walt Disney Company and what happened was they originally Katzenberg's lawyers wanted to settle for like I don't know I think it was like some like a third of what the the deal initially was mm-hmm. and, and Eisner was like F that bring it to court and guess what they sided against Eisner they had to pay Katzenberg something like 175 million dollars wow yep okay and so what and then ever since then and that was also in the same time period of Euro Disney and that was that was tanking really bad <laughs> so Eisner was re- was really in a bad place and then you add on top of that you have Michael Ovitz who which Eisner hired to fill Jeffrey Katzenberg's vacuum Michael Ovitz being like a he was a talent representative he was the head of one of the major talent agencies in Hollywood he knew nothing about what Katzenberg's job was but because he was a confidant of Eisner and Eisner wants somebody that had his back he hired him and Ovitz was such a disaster they had to fire him after a year and he also got like a quarter of like a quarter of a billion dollar like golden parachute and that's when Eisner was really starting to like lose control of Disney. 
And even though he stayed in charge as the company until about like 2003, four ish, okay. that's kind of when like there was the, uh Oh, we like, like they say the, the wheels were coming off the cart. You had all these major yeah. kind of, and think about it back then we didn't have Twitter. We didn't have these sort of things. So unless you followed the Hollywood trades back in the nineties, yep. you had no idea about any of these stories. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that is, something that is the most interesting about giving us this kind of look back into the past that now we can, in some sense, clear, clearly, in some sense, get a, an idea of what the steps in these processes were. And that is interesting. Yeah. And that's why I say the, the, the aftermath of this is infinitely more interesting because after this, you have, because after Lion King is Hunchback of No Tree. No, after this is Pocahontas, okay. then it's Hunchback, mm-hmm. Hercules, oh, Mulan. Love Hercules. Mulan and then Tarzan. Mulan's okay. I've never seen Mulan. I don't like Hercules. Tarzan's fine. I kind of like Hunchback. Don't like Pocahontas. Like I think I've said it before on Cinemodies. I've not watched all this stuff. I'm I'm more interested in the context around it than the actual films themselves. Sure, sure. And that's why a lot of people do look at The Lion King, and you did have this kind of there was this because once Katzenberg left. Not that, again, it did leave a void because Katzenberg knew how to motivate these people at this point. He knew how to. Mm-hmm. I love there's one part in this documentary where Katzenberg sat them all down. It's like, guys, like, <laughs> what's happening with your, with your domestic lives? Like, what's happening with your wives, husbands, <laughs> and children? Why do you hate working for me? <laughs> yes. And I love how it's like, oh, Katzenberg had a heart to heart with all these people and nothing changed. It it only yeah. got it only got worse from More there. More pressure, yep. <laughs> exactly. But guess what though? They do mention that at this time everybody was getting bonuses. Everybody like, every, the money was coming in, so yep. everybody was being compensated. More and, BMWs in the parking lot. They they include that line. Yeah, and that's what it was though. Is that all these animators too were becoming? It wasn't just simply you were an employee of the Walt Disney Company. It was oh, your animator Gary so and so, or your Kirk somebody. You have a lawyer representation. Mm-hmm. So you would have a lot of this sort of that's and that's why I mean though that's why we're still feeling the repercussions from this day where like Disney hires JJ Abrams and he's not just a employee he is a entertainment entity up to himself. Oh yeah. Absolutely. And that's where and that's where a lot of this starts you see that coming in because prior to that yes Disney did make like live action movies but they were under the banner of Touchstone. They were there they even though they were part of the company they were removed from it all in a direct sense. Mm-hmm. And that's why like I said when it comes to the animation stuff you did start to get that culture of the artist or the employees becoming the talent. Yeah, there, there's more to be said than just the uh, the few names we always get to hear. Absolutely. And that's why, me too, like when you look at filmmaking in the movie Hollywood culture, this is when that starts to be like, yes, you always had directors like Spielberg, but now you kind of had everybody's. It's kind of like everybody mm-hmm. has a gimmick now. Yeah, yeah, 100 percent. And that's why I mean that's why this film is this film is kind of like okay I think I've I'm not sure if I said on the, it has to be here I could never have said this on Knights of Vader it would have made no sense but Orson Welles said when he was making like Citizen Kane that all he did was rewatch John Ford Stagecoach because it taught him everything he needed to know about Hollywood yeah. about how to make movies yeah and Waking Sleeping Beauty is my equivalent to understanding how Disney works now 
Gotcha. Is that I can just keep watching this and I can keep inferring, I can keep extrapolating information from this that helps me better understand what they're doing now. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I think that's the point of having Rob watch this. I know Rob doesn't really care about Howard Ashman dying of AIDS that during the production actually, of Beauty. That of was AIDS. crazy to me. Okay, that was a crazy part of this movie to me. Still, but I think if I, when you go to bed tonight, you're not going to say your prayers and say, "Dear Lord, thank, thank Zach for sharing me the story of the making of Beauty and the Beast." I'm going I don't, to for the seven hundred millionth day in a row not say my <laughs> prayers tonight. <laughs> but still, that the is po- correct. <laughs> that's the point, though. It's like, yes, like. Is this interesting in this like in kind of like a passing sense this film? Yeah, to to the uninitiated. But I think it's the idea that this is meant again, this is the context episode for the rest of December plus. It gives you that idea, like even they mentioned this too, was that yes, Disney always had merchandise for its for its properties, mm-hmm. but it was things like the Little Mermaid that really kickstarted, like, oh, we can put Ariel on everything and it will make a fortune. Yeah, it's where they really started to get, and that's where the end of the documentary goes, where they get into that kind of money-churning scene. As far as we know Disney today, I would say. That's why I mean, though, and that's kind of the, that's the point of this. And yeah, I don't think, yeah. I, and that's the weird thing, is that like when Don Hahn, the producer of that, well, the producer of a bunch of the animated films, and the director of this, because it's not even hinted at in the documentary, is that there's a person named, what, Pete Snyder? Something like that's, that. Yeah. yeah, he is the co-producer on this because in the behind-the-scenes like bonus features on the DVD, he's there with Don Hahn in every single instance. Yeah, he's never really positioned as a co—oh god—director of this. Like okay. he's not, but he is, and he's the one in the in the bonus feature says this was my idea, but it didn't get off the ground until I went to Don because Don has all the connections still. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's what this is. Like this film is designed to give Disney nerds a peek behind the curtain as to what was going on during the studio's high point and a little bit before the high point. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, you know, I, I love it on that level. That's not really how I've been able to enjoy it to its maximum potential these last almost 10 years. Gotcha. And that's what it is. It is that piece of just because even later in the film, and the film doesn't really do a great job of exploring this or really making it as coherent as they could, is that you did start to have that rivalry between Roy E. Disney, Katzenberg, Michael Eisner, once the the peacemaker of Frank Wells was taken out of the picture of his uh, oh, unexpected yeah. death by the helicopter crash. Yeah, they like they like mentioned something about that after they introduced Frank Wells's death. And they're like, and then the animosity between them was incredibly apparent. And then there's like two lines that don't show any animosity at all. And I'm like, oh, okay, I guess. <laughs> well, they do. Uh, like, it's not. There's a lot. Again, you. That's the problem with this. Is that not the problem with the film? But the problem with me is that, like, I know everything that's going on, and like, I know I, I'm following. This is kind of like imagine watching a soap opera. Around the 20th season. That's why I kind of made Rob do. And I've been watching it. It's like when I it's like when I had you watch Breaking Bad. I knew every in and out detail of Breaking Bad, and you just got that one episode, right? Sure, it's kind yeah. of the reverse of that. Yeah. It is, yes, it is. But the problem though is that Breaking by the time we were watching what grilled, Breaking Bad was over. 
Yeah, by the time we're watching Waking Sleeping Beauty, the company is still doing things. Okay, it's like if I made you watch an episode of Zack, because that's yes, going to go on as long go. as Disney goes on. <laughs> exactly. It's just like that. Uh, but no, that's but that's kind of the point, though, is that like Disney's constantly evolving, and we're always learning things about the past. And but going back to what Rob was saying about the animosity, is that you have there's a sequence. Where and, and all this for the record, this film it's all archival footage mm-hmm. with narration from from the different personalities that were involved during this time. No talking heads, no like recreated footage, no reenactments. It's stock footage and just a B roll of a lot of just home movies. But there's an instance that I guess somebody videotaped Frank Wells's memorial. And Michael Eisner goes up and gives a eulogy. And then Roy E. Disney goes up there and says, that was it. And Michael Eisner comes like racing across the stage. And it's one of the biggest, just like passive aggressive physical movements. He rips the mic away, not away, but he rips the mic away from Roy E. Disney. And he says, fantastic, wonderful human being. Good enough. And he walks away. And it's like, oh my, you could cut that you you could cut the tension with a machete at that point. It was that thick. Just the contempt and disdain in the room. I would now like to introduce the man who thought up Frank and me for this job, Roy Disney. That was it. My speaker's off. This is a fantastic, wonderful, (laughs) unbelievable human being. Okay. Okay. And that's the sort of thing, though, is that the film doesn't highlight, I'm sorry, it doesn't highlight that as much as, it doesn't give it as much weight. There's not enough weight to that as there should be. Because going back to like this whole thing they talk about is that Jeffrey Katzenberg wanted uh, Frank Wells' job. And in the Disney War book, because the Disney War book takes place during the same time frame as this, it, it, it goes even further in depth with the story of what this time period was as well. And okay. what was happening, because I, I could be wrong, I haven't read that book in a while, but I think prior to Frank Wells' death, I think Frank Wells wanted out after like his contract was up. So Jeffrey Katzenberg was told prior to Frank Wells' death, he could have that job. Okay. So when so when Frank Wells died, Katzenberg kind of just felt, oh, like there's there's a power vacuum now. Mm-hmm. I was promised this ahead of t- I was being groomed for this position ahead of time. Why not give it to me now? And that's when the things they reference, like the Lion King and the press tours, yeah. where Roy E. Disney and Eisner did not like Katzenberg getting the spotlight because even we hear the stories of of Katzenberg's Christmas parties and we even get a shot at, I think, the Oscars or the Golden Globes where you have Katzenberg sitting next to Nicole Kidman and Tom Cruise. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. And you you think of this time period, the early 90s, Tom Cruise was honest to God at the height of his power. Okay. Like, and that's what I mean, though, is that Katzenberg, I'm sorry, Eisner in, in... Disney, Roy E. Disney were afraid of the potential monster they were creating with Katzenberg. So when Wells died, it was like, we can't let this guy get any higher in the company. Mm-hmm. Like, again, the egos, we got to keep him below below decks. And that's when Katzenberg finally kind of said, why, like he says in the documentary, 
Um, they, again, they interview all these people, folks. You do not have any secondhand knowledge. They are interviewing everybody. Eisner, Roy E. Disney, uh, Katzenberg. Everybody's being interviewed here. Nobody, it's not like, oh, I, this person told me this story. It's not secondhand accounts. And yeah. I think that's another part of this, too, is that every, why this is an oddity, everybody's going on the record. Nobody is the only people that aren't going on the record are someone like Howard Ashman who passed away. It's the people who aren't able to participate. They're the only ones that aren't here. We and, do get a, a Howard Ashman. We do get a good bit of archival, like you said, archival sure. footage from which which does, like I said at the start, this is a real documentary. And I think that's adds to it a great extent because he plays a huge role in the story and they uh, don't uh, shy away from that fact in the slightest. Yeah, and he was one because that was all. That's been the issue with Disney, the company, forever. Less so today, but it's always the million dollar question: Who's the next Walt? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Who's the Messiah that's going to 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 save them forever? Again, <laughs> well, that's what it is, though. And and every CEO sees them as this as this person. And maybe, and I don't think, and that's the problem is I don't think it's, I don't think any of the CEOs or heads of the company ever walked in there being like, I'm going to be the next Walt Disney. Sure. Eisner probably being the closest because he was the most creative CEO the company has had since Walt Disney. Obviously, Bob Iger isn't a creative CEO. He's the uh, checkbook CEO. It's just, I'll write you a check and now solve all the problems. And that's kind of the thing with this is that there's that creative just head of the the creative center of the company that needs to steer the ship and that's never going to exist again okay okay uh i fair enough i mean disney <laughs> as we know it today i think that's kind of where i'm i'm kind of a little you know not confused but a little disjointed with this conversation because we're talking about disney at a time i've never ever thought about them versus the disney that's almost a monopoly as I know it today. And, well, and that, and that's why when you say, you know, you're never going to have that creative of a, of a CEO again, it's like, well, maybe, I mean, maybe we're living in this cyclical universe where we go from these peaks and troughs and just every time the, the peaks get higher, like Disney is now the troughs get lower and something like that could come back again. I, I mean, I, I'm not saying that's the case or it's not the case. It's just kind of like, this is a weird sense of speculation I've never thought about before. Fuck Disney. <laughs> the point being is that most normal people don't think about the uh, the heads of the company of a multi-billion dollar multinational corporation, yep. except Disney nerds. Because there's one thing that's also happened, too, when it comes to like Disney fan culture. And, and Rob kind of knows where this is going, but I'm going to bring it in a lot is that there is this thing now where you do have a lot of armchair quarterbacking from YouTube when it comes to mm -hmm. Disney history. Yeah. And I can actually bring this up because this person is responsible for this sort of yeah. narrative, despite the, <laughs> I can finally say it, Rob, because it's relevant to this oh, conversation. God. What door did I open? <laughs> oh yeah, folks. See, Rob now knows what it felt like for that two months during the summer. He knows now. He knows. We're, we're going to keep even more – I had two months of sketch comedy. He's got a very concentrated one month. With I thought fa I was going to save my Slim Jim for the snacks at night. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy, folks. Five Mondays. It's going to be glorious. Just wait, just wait okay. until we get to like that fourth month.
I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm 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 ready. <laughs> no, it's not as ba- it's not as bad as what he's expecting it to be. Is that there is defunct land in Kevin Perjurer, and again, I don't think this was his intent. But what he did was he's convinced an entire generation of mindless idiots on YouTube that Michael Eisner is Satan. And that was never, and I've talked to Kevin a couple of times, that was never his intent. He was doing it for comedic relief, for comedic purposes. Yet, as we all know on the internet, there's no such thing as subtlety. An entire generation of idiots think that Michael Eisner ruined Disney. The problem is that Michael Eisner kind of, in 1994-5, kind of got kicked in the nuts like three or four times in a row. The first one being, he lost Jeffrey. Like, he lost Frank Wells. He had, like uh, he had what the open heart surgery. Mm-hmm. He sat there, had Jeffrey Katzenberg. He had Euro Disney fail. He had all these things kind of happen in the span of a couple years, and he no longer had any friends. And that's why yeah. he hired Michael Ovitz, and then that collapsed on him. And he really, everybody kind of looked at him. It's like, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. And that's while he's trying to salvage Euro Disneyland. He's trying to expand the company. And then, like, in all this, in any sort of like when you're trying to manage a multi million dollar, multi billion, I'm sorry, multinational corporation, you make decisions, yet you don't feel the change in those choices until years later. Mm-hmm. And that's what happened. Michael Eisner and Jeffrey Katzenberg and Frank Wells got get brought on board in 1984, yet it's not until like, 89 that you really start to feel the seismic shift in the company yeah yeah absolutely any any entity business or government otherwise you know the bigger it is the longer it takes for things to actually ripple through it and that's i think that's an interesting point of disney because it is such a big company and it takes that time for things to really settle into play yeah, and that's why you have things like when it comes to like the Disney films of like again this time period being classified as the Disney Renaissance, yep. the period between Little Mermaid to Tarzan, in that why after Tarzan all like everything kind of falls apart because after Tarzan you get Fantasia two thousand which cost like a staggering amount of money and that was Roy E Disney's like love letter to his father and Walt. Sure. And then that collapses. That that was a they lost a lot of money on that. Then you have Dinosaur, which even though that wasn't a bomb, it really didn't make them the money they wanted. Then you have Emperor's New Groove. And then you have Atlantis the Lost Empire. And then you have a slight rebound with Lilo and Stitch. But then you go right back to like Brother Bear and then Home on the Range. Oh god. And it, and guess what? And then Michael Eisner was gone by that. Like, he was gone okay. before, like, Brother Bear. But that's what I mean, though, is that the ship became very rudderless. And then Bob Iger comes on in the mid-2000s. And that's a thing everybody forgets about, too, is that with Bob Iger, he started about 15 years ago. And it really, the company didn't really start to hit its stride until about, like, 2012, Okay. Like, y- yes, they had, like, because Michael Eisner's the one that, that greenlit Pirates of the Caribbean, the first one. And then he all, and by that time, it was him that greenlit the sequel. And yes, those sequels did make a lot of money, but that's why, but you get, by the time you get to Pirates of the Caribbean 4, which is under Bob Iger's reign, that was kind of, you know, it made a ton of money. It's considered a creative dud. And then you get Pirates of the Caribbean 5, which came out a couple years ago. Again, mm-hmm. Disney, and that's what, 
uh, Bob Iger's strategy has been. He's not creative, so what he does is he breaks out the checkbook. All right, we're going to buy the Muppets. We're going to buy Pixar. We're going to buy Marvel. We're going to buy Lucasfilm. We're going to buy Fox. And that's his solution. His solution is um, we're going to spend our way. We're going to buy our creativity. Mm-hmm. And that's why everybody kind of like if you go look in like the annals of Disney fandom, a lot of people kind of like myself included hope that Bob Iger eventually leaves soon so we can get some fresh blood in there and start getting some new ideas into the company. Mm-hmm. No okay. more no more checkbook philosophy. Yeah. Let's start let's start pumping ideas into the company again. Except the checkbook philosophy is making the company hand over fist dollars. I I dig it. I dig it. That that seems to be the way to get, you know, some fresh ideas in there. So, why not? That's but that's the problem though. Is that now, but again, the the decision of what happened in the past oh. is being like, that's what I mean. All sure. this is a snow everything's a snowball effect. Yeah. We're again, you think about it, you get Bob Iger because Roy E Disney got mad at Michael Eisner and threw him out. Mm-hmm. He, he sta- that's one of the big things in Disney history too is the 2003 um Oh god, what's it called? Oh god, um shareholders vote where Roy E. Disney did the same thing he did back in the early eighties. He resigned from the board and from the outside coordinated the campaign with the shareholders to have Eisner removed. Until okay. eventually I it was kind of like it was a not this isn't really an apples to apples comparison, but it, like Eisner kind of did a Richard Nixon. He kind of sat there, looked at the numbers and said, I'm not gonna survive this, so I'm gonna save face <laughs> and resign. Sure. And that's what happened. He got, he got Roy E. Disney was a spike. They mentioned it very early in the film. If you know you, if you, eh, if you know your Disney history, Roy E. Disney is, was referred to as the idiot nephew. Oh, because okay. because he was, and again, he wasn't an idiot. And I forget who it's, who says it in the film. It might be uh, Pete Snyder. It was. He wasn't an idiot because he lacked intelligence. Mm-hmm. And, and, and for the folk, and for the record, folks, this is my own inference here. It wasn't because he lacked intelligence. It's because he was a stubborn, entitled child. Okay. And that's why he caused all these problems. That Roy got mad because it's my name on the company. My father and Walt built this company. I should have more say than anybody else, despite sure. the fact that I don't have that title or authority. So when I don't get my way, I'm gonna I'm gonna take my toys and go home. Yep. And that happened. That's that's what Roy E. Disney did in 2003. He went around waving his name around to the shareholders, saying, "I'm a Disney. I know what's best." <laughs> like it works that way. And that's what, well, he did. He did it twice. He did it in the early eighties and he almost got the company destroyed and he did it again. And that, and that's kind of the thing where like when he, like he was still, again, he died not too long after this came out. I think he died in like 2011 or 12. And by that time I had read this book and even though this is going to sound horrible, you're, you were kind of glad he he was gone because he really was a, he, he was an idiot in that he was, again, it was the ego. Yeah, he was more concerned about his ideas in the company than the overall company itself. Sure, sure, and that's one thing that Disney, on a corporate level, doesn't have anymore. It doesn't really have that family influence. Yeah. Like, yeah, I think I forget who it is. It might be one of 
there's a couple of family members left. I think there's maybe a nephew or a niece still that's still around. That's worth like some absurd amount of money. They were in the news in the last few, few months, maybe year. Cause they were complaining about like the horrid conditions at Disneyland for the employees, um, something like that. But you don't have that anymore with the, the, the Disney family. Mm-hmm having making decisions but the weird thing and talk about these decisions of uh, the snowball effect is that one of the, the the largest shareholder of disney is steve jobs's widow oh really because god two, damn yep because in 2006 um when uh Iger bought pixar Steve Jobs being the largest shareholder and one of the founders of Pixar proper the way we think of it today so when they bought that out, he got a ton of Disney stock. Okay. So when like anytime, like if you go back to like some of the like early iPod, I'm sorry, iPhone presentations and everything was always Disney oriented. Anytime Steve Jobs like had like he was showing iTunes off or the iPod video or the iPhone, a lot of it was featuring Disney content because guess what? Disney wanted to keep mm. him happy. Yep. Because he was the largest share, he was the largest shareholder of the company. And now you have interest. I guess another thing too is that ever since the Fox deal went through, the Murdochs are, I think, the second largest shareholders of the company. And I think it's interesting that if you watch Fox News or any Fox owned, well, now it's just Fox News or Fox, the broadcast network, it's very interesting. They very rarely ever now criticize Disney. Sure. A couple of years, a couple of years ago, when Disney would do something really stupid, like really over the top politically correct, Fox would kind of like put Disney through the ringer. Now yep. we don't talk about Disney at all. No, now they're all good friends. Because guess what? Financial st- and that's and that's the quasi circle jerk aspect to all mm-hmm. this. Everybody yep. has their fingers in everybody else's pie. Yeah, systematically aligned interests. But that's what I mean by the snowball effect, because you go back to, again, because Steve Jobs' widow is the second largest shareholder, because Steve Jobs got his stock swapped when they picked Pixar. I'm sorry, when they purchased Pixar. Well, what happened prior to that? Well, Michael Eisner and and, uh, Jobs never got along. They hated each other. And eventually Eisner told uh, Jobs he could shove Pixar up his ass and they were going to start doing their own, their own spinoffs of the, uh, the Toy Story Monsters Inc. without Pixar. And then prior to that, the only reason why you have the connection between uh, Pixar and Disney was when Roy E. Disney wanted to see, it's mentioned in here. They okay. want, they want, they want John Lasseter back and they couldn't do that. So they figured the best way to get uh, uh, Lasseter's attention was to make a deal with Pixar, a okay. toy story. Okay. So that's why I mean, God like, damn it. We found the only overlap of the story that I'm aware of because of why square Enix couldn't get toy story world in the first kingdom hearts. God damn it. Zach, we found the overlap. With there my you go. Knowledge. There you go. <laughs> there you go. And I think that's that's why this film is important, not just as like a Disney nerd. It's important, like on, on a movie podcast, considering that how Disney, like indirectly, dictates where Hollywood's going now. Because everything now is the Marvel formula. Everything is the shared universe. Mm-hmm. Everything is connected so we can make a fortune off everything. Yep. And that all comes from this time period. Yes. And I, I think I said to Zach a while ago, not on 
uh, the podcast, but when we weren't recording, you know, when Kingdom Hearts 3 came out, people were like, why the hell is there a Big Hero 6 world? And my immediate response was, because Disney has no other way to popularize Big Hero 6 than yep. to put it in this video game. That's exactly why it's here. And it was a great world. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, like, again, corporations don't make decisions arbitrarily. They're always, exactly. doing, they're always doing it for a reason. Whether that mm-hmm. reason's correct or not is anyone's guess. But they're doing it because they can point to something and say, oh, yep. They've done something like a cost-benefit analysis, risk-to-reward analysis. They've encountered all that stuff. Like, I'm with you, Zach. Nothing is arbitrary when it comes to making money. That sort of stuff, yeah. Return on investment, all that sort of stuff. And that's where you do get the things, like I said, like they mentioned, like all the merchandise, all this stuff. The fact that, like, Disney no no longer was this cute little thing that would release a movie every few years, and it would go back into, like, hibernation it mm-hmm. was a constant presence yeah. it's like even though everybody knew uncle walt and mickey mouse this is when disney became ubiquitous because we are still re again the hammer the point home one more time is that look at that we're getting live again we got live action lion king this year live action aladdin yep. we're, we're gonna get live action little mermaid soon it's we're getting all these live action things again live live action mulan are we we're really get- getting live action Little Mermaid? Is that yep. really heaven? Yep. Oh shit. Yep. That's happening. Did you ever yeah. see the guy Richie Aladdin? No. No. I I, I I did. I went. I don't care. I never liked Aladdin, <laughs> but I did. I was once at the gym, and because I follow like the Disney music like Vivo account or, or subscribe sure. to them, and yeah. when that came out on Blu-ray a couple months ago, they posted like a clip of the entire um. You've never had a friend like me. Like scene on YouTube. I watched that. Oh, does it, Will Smith sing it? Yeah, it's actually like again, I watched it, I thought it was pretty cool. Like, I have okay. I have no okay. nostalgic affinity for that film, so I didn't care. But as I was watching it, it was neat. It was, okay. it was, I, have neat. I wasn't bored affinity for Robin Williams' songs, but uh, okay. I, I have to check it out. I have to check it out because I love it's, Guy Ritchie and I keep watching Revolver, so I should check out one of his other movies once. <laughs> One of his more commercial films. Yes, <laughs> technically this is his most commercial film. Oh, oh my God, absolutely. Yeah, a billion dollars, baby. Um, but no, but like going back to your point, this real quick about Robin Williams, I do have to say because when this was made, and I guess again I have been watching this for so many years, it was it was kind of like sad seeing Robin Williams that you if you see this guy who again Robin Williams was always the life of the party so to speak yeah and mm-hmm. you think about like eventually what happened to him and just like kind of like the tremendous sadness that consumed him and it was like, like again you really feel that kind of like oh god like like a tragedy. You get that very oh, yeah. specific ping, like this guy was so full of life to everybody, yet there was this immense darkness and sadness to him that nobody could really puncture through. Absolutely. And that was kind of one of those moments that like when they made this documentary, that was not even I, they probably didn't think about it like everybody else did. Sure. You look back now and you're like, wow, like if this was being remade today, that alone would be its own little like tangent. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Oh, that's a that's a really great point. Absolutely. I, I do want to say that. You, it, yeah. How do you skip over that facet of the story? Because even even yeah. watching this, it's I I didn't even really pick up on this. But like as I was watching it today, I'm like, wow, they really don't like highlight Aladdin's production 
as much as they highlight all the others again, Lion King, uh, Beauty okay. and the Beast, all those. But in the deleted scenes, there's actually like a 10, 15 minute long subplot of Aladdin's problems. Okay. So they so they did cover a lot of this. I guess cut it out because they didn't, they didn't think it it wasn't mm-hmm. important. But it is there. It is in the deleted scenes. The story too. Again, like every film has problems. There's no such thing as a film that goes 100 percent according to plan. And they all live happily ever after. There's like any sort of creative process. There's like Rob says, you have the your peaks and your and your valleys. Yep. Um. So all right, Rob. Do you have any more uh, highlights or? Uh, the low points that you want to highlight or oh my god <laughs> there was that so much information was thrown at you by me zach thrown at me by you oh my god my brain can't even work folks i so can much do information. this folks i could sit there talk all day you know what the sad part is this is without me doing any research this is without me look i did not read a single article today yeah I, for any for anybody that no i think the perfect example for anybody that knows me this is how i can talk about math i don't need a script <laughs> or anything i can go on for hours i'm with you zach i love it and i i appreciate it it's just it's a lot for anybody to take in you have to realize that <laughs> <laughs> that's but that's the weird thing with me though. It's like I talk about this and when Rob like like I get okay. The objective side of my brain is like, okay, I get it. Like this is something specific to me. And I'm, I think I I forget what I was doing, but there was a couple of uh maybe a month or two ago, our house, like like the internet and the cable went out because like Optimum had like a meltdown at like their server, wherever their servers are located. Sure. So we lost everything, like internet and power not power, internet and cable for like yeah six seven hours and so my mother was like oh like i'm like i have like literally a thousand blu-rays and like three i'm sorry a thousand dvds and like 300 blu-rays yeah. i'm like I, I have entertainment we don't need cable and so i so i i cracked open the um this is i think it said be right before halloween on my psycho dvd there's a like a bonus disc and it's like an hour and a half long documentary about like the making of psycho and she's like oh that'll be interesting so i put that on and she's like sat down for the first 15 minutes she's like this is like the most boring thing i've ever seen and i'm sitting there like like a five-year-old on a saturday morning watching cartoons i'm like what do you mean this is great i'm like like how can anybody not appreciate this for like just the sheer amount of information it's giving you and the insights it's providing and then i have to kind of like take off my like movie nerd cap and put on my objective cap and be like oh people actually like things that i don't people don't like things that i like Mm mm-hmm not everybody is a movie yeah. died in the wool like they want to know how because this is the sausage being made. Yeah, yeah. And I have to realize that sometimes that it's a very spe- again, like Rob said, we all have our we have our own little idiosyncrasies and what we specifically like. But this is one of the more oh god, like what's one step above like beyond niche obsession? No. Yes, it's an obsession. <laughs> No, that's I exactly think... how I feel about my thing. Because what you just described, I've lived that. I've lived that multiple fucking times where I've showed people things about math and they're like, I don't care. And I'm like, how can you not care that this person literally went crazy working on one problem his whole life and that problem still is unsolved? And it, it's an obsession. It It is a very, very calm obsession, Zach. I, I'm accept the, it. I, that's that. Accept okay. it. That is a very. I'm looking for a more objective way to describe it. 
I think, okay, I think it's, I don't argue whether on maybe on an individual level, like it's an obsession, but I mean like describing it in more of a technical term. I'd say like you have a niche, a niche topic, multiple people can enjoy, like a group can enjoy a niche topic. Like niche topics can sustain themselves because there's enough of a community for them. I think this is a very tailored subject matter. It's tailored to individuals as opposed to like a, like a group. It's a fixation. Okay, you're getting warmer, but I still don't think that's ideal. I am going to continue to say synonyms for obsession (laughs) till the cows come home because it is a mental defect. Your love for Disney and my love for math is an inherent problem with us, Zach. I I learned that. I've learned that the hard way. Accept it. (laughs) All right. I'd like to – may I – okay, I'm going to make a brief – considering that Rob's kind of giving me the control of this, may I make – can I make clear my late-night status of this movie right now? Uh, before, like, I get my chance to answer? Well, you're, you okay. I, I need to get this out now f- before I forget it. Sure, sure. I got, if you, if you feel that it's time, it's, yeah, I'm ready. <laughs> no, it's not time yet, but, okay. During the Fantastic Planet episode, Rob said, you must play this movie after Coitus. I would like to suggest yeah, the Zach equivalency right. of this. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have the spreadsheet open, but that sounds right. <laughs> I propose the Zach equivalent of the post-coitus Fantastic Planet viewing is of Waking Sleeping Beauty. Oh, Am I wrong, Rob? Man. I mean... Uh... I don't know. I don't know if I'm ready to answer that. <laughs> I'll, you know, I'll, let you, I'll let you sit on it. Until yeah, we, I until feel we like... Get to your- since since we have what fucking sixteen Mondays in December for uh, Disney yeah. movies, uh, maybe we can come back to that. One. You know, you know, what I realize, folks. Next, we're gonna have to kind of break up the order of December plus because I think if I make Rob watch the Sweatbox next next week, there's a very real possibility <laughs> that he might quit this. There's Wasn't a it with a uh, that was with another movie, right? Emperor's New Groove. Emperor's yeah. Yeah. But the Sweatbox again. If you think this was dry. The sweat box is one step even past that. Oh, God. <laughs> so I, th- you know what we're going to do, folks? We're going to switch up the order. I'm going to change the spreadsheet after this recording. We are going to do this. We're going to do the secret, the secret December oh! next week. We are going to do that because I think if I make Rob once again go into the Oh God! Into the weeds, the swamp, the Everglades, where the Zach crocodiles just waiting to bite his <laughs> leg and drag him under. I think Rob might just finally, like, really, like, he'll just eat the Slim Jim the entire episode. Be like, Zach, I'm gonna put my microphone on mute. Like, like, say a magic word a couple of times, and then, then and I'll, I'll come go, back. Mm-hmm. Yes, to make it sound good. But other than that, you're on your own. We're gonna have to do that, folks. I don't think it's fair that I hit him twice with two of these things in one I... in one span. I uh, I would never ever quit this podcast, Zach. I would only become disenfranchised with it. <laughs> correct there, but I, I would appreciate if we did not do another doc. I see. I was okay because I knew next week there was going to be documentary with another movie, so I was kind of like getting ready for that. But if you want to throw me uh, uh, behind the curtains, reprieve. Yeah, reprieve in the sense of I have to literally sit on my couch and text you a, like a six digit code yep. to tell you yep. that I'm ready to get this movie and then you tell me what it is. I don't know what this movie is, so it's a it's a it's a counterbalance for sure. 
There's a possibility. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll give you a hint. I'll give you a hint. Back when we were driving, after, do you remember when we saw Inception for? It's a tool music video. No, you wish it was a tool music. <laughs> it's a, okay. You're getting warmer. Oh, getting warmer. <laughs> it's a, this is the Zach equivalent of a tool music video. But oh, I'll give you, I'll give you, okay, depending on how good your memory is, Rob. After you and I, the second time you and I saw Inception, I'm not sure if maybe, I think it was my second time, maybe your third. We saw, remember we saw Inception with Sal. Remember that? We saw that with my parents and Sal. In the Galleria, right? Well, of course, Rob. Where else would we have seen it? Um, <laughs> of course. Other than, other, yeah, come on, Rob. We live at the Galleria. That's, 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 a, that's, that's set in stone now. But afterwards, <laughs> I, we were in the car. I think it was after we picked you up. It was either on the way to the movie theater or coming back. I played a CD with a very specific soundtrack of something. And by soundtrack, I don't mean like soundtrack in the specific, like, oh, this is the soundtrack for a movie, but a very specific okay. music from something that mm. if you can remember that, you will know what this is. And obviously the fact that I gave you a clue that this is the Zach equivalent of tool music videos, <laughs> that should give you a hint. Okay. okay. Give you two hints. Okay, so you've experienced I'm going to think on it, folks, and we're going to see, we're going to see how it goes. He's going to be mad. He's going to be if, okay. If it makes you feel like I'm going to be mad like, regardless. Don't get me wrong. It's only a half an hour. Thank God. Thank <laughs> God. <laughs> oh, but it's, it's going to grate on you. It's going to oh, grate on you, but it's going to grate on you, but it's going to be entertaining as hell. Well, I guess that's what everybody should look forward to. Next it's not week. boring. It's not boring. Too much weird stuff's going on throughout it. Good. Good. Oh, you're gonna love it. It's it's gonna be good. I, I I look well. I thought of it. I said, how um how on earth have I not thought of this before? And I might even just watch it tonight just for giggles. It's something. Why? Yeah, it's gonna be good. I look forward to it. I okay. look forward okay. to it. Like okay. all of December plus. Yep, Zach's giving me some good uh good lead on this movie, so I look forward to it as well. I guess as much. All right, as I Rob. Can. Do you? Because I feel I think I've said again. I, okay, my. Okay, we'll get into it later on. Do you have any other specific things you just want to address or highlight, or you just want to go straight to our uh, question? I I think the only other thing I want to highlight is um, I do think that there is a moment in Disney history that stands out above all others, and we are not going to discuss it in this series because I can't imagine that your secret Disney movie is Beauty and the Beast. No. Do you like Beauty and the Beast? What are your thoughts? Kind of never seen it. Okay, um, I have seen Beauty and the Beast many times, primarily because I think this might be a shock even to Zach. Beauty and the Beast is my mother's favorite movie. No, that's a lie. Yes, even more than Harry Potter, she I, loves Beauty and the Beast. I don't believe that. I'm not kidding you, Zach. My mother loves this and she inundated it with me in my childhood i'm not even kidding you when kingdom hearts 2 came out when i was in high school and i was playing it that was kingdom hearts the only kingdom hearts game that includes a beauty and the beast world she watched me play through beauty and the beast world (laughs) she loves beauty and the beast and to this day i don't know if it's because of that love for my mother and her making me watch it so many times Shit, she even took me to the goddamn Broadway play. Really? 
Yes! I'm not kidding you, Zach. She How? loves Beauty and the Beast. Why did this happen? Okay, this is the equivalent. Okay. This, this, okay. When Rob <laughs> told me he's like lactose intolerant and that came out of nowhere, and I'm like, Rob, you not, like, you came to my house for dinner and that never came up in conversation. Yet, <laughs> somehow, like this is like after like 10 years of hearing about his mother and Harry Potter. No, I don't believe That's this. all Somebody's, she ever talks about. Somebody's lying. Beauty and the Beast movie. There's been constant new Harry Potter movies. So what do you mean? They did Emma Watson. Emma Watson. She didn't give a shit about that. (laughs) Still counts. Still. That would actually be a good question to see how she if she saw that and if she liked it. But I'm I'm trying to shenanigans. Shenanigans. This will. This is perfect two year anniversary episode fodder. So fantastic. The point I'm trying to make is that the greatest moment in Disney history is in Beauty and the Beast, and it is the song, Be Our Guest. Jerry Orbach and Angela Lansbury. Yes! Yes! The immortal Angela Lansbury (laughs) sings a song with Jerry Orbach, and it is a fantastic song, Be Our Guest. Be Our Guest. Be our guest, put our service to the test. Tie your napkin round your neck, sherry, and we provide the rest. Soup du jour, hot hors d'oeuvre, why, we only live to serve. Try the gray stuff, it's delicious. Don't believe me? Ask the dishes. They can sing, they can dance. After all, miss, this is France. And a dinner here is never second best. Go on, unfold your menu, take a glance, and then you'll be our guest. We our guest, be our guest. Beef ragout, cheese souffle, pie and pudding on flambé. We'll prepare and serve with flair a culinary cabaret. You're alone and you're scared, but the banquet's all prepared. No one's gloomy or complaining while the flatware's entertaining. We tell jokes, I do tricks with my fellow candlesticks. Put it all in perfect taste that you can bear. Come on and lift your glass, you've won your own free pass to be our guest. If you're stressed, it's fine dining we suggest. Be our guest, be our guest, be our guest. Life is so unnerving for a servant who's not serving. He's not whole without a soul to wait upon. Ah, those good old days when we were useful. Suddenly those good old days are gone. Ten years we've been rusting, needing so much more than dusting, needing exercise, a chance to use our skill. Most days we just lay around the castle. Flappy, fat, and lazy, you walked in and oops, a daisy. It's a guest, it's a guest, sakes alive and loving blessed. Wise been poor and thank the Lord I've had the napkins freshly pressed. With dessert, she'll want tea, and my dear, that's fine with me. While the cups do this, I'll chew it, I'll be bubbling, I'll be brewing, I'll get warm, I've been hot. Heaven's sakes, is that a spot? Clean it up, we want the company impressed. We've got a lot to do. Oh, 
shout Tonight you'll rock your feet up, but for now let's eat up. Be our guest, be our guest, be our guest, please be our guest. That is the greatest moment. That's better than all of Aristocats. I know I'm not going to get pushed back there. But that is such a fantastic moment. It's the best moment in Disney history. I love it. Be Our Guest is a great song. Angela Lansbury, Jerry Orbach. Oh. 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 What more is there to say, Zach? Okay. Yeah, I have something to say about Jerry Orbach. I'm not. Okay. Slight switch gears. I guess it's Lenny Briscoe? No. Um, Okay. In in The Rise of Skywalker, the giant horse creatures. Lenny Briscoe. No, in the Rise of Skywalker, they're riding like the space horses, and they're called Orbacks. So I've been wanting to ask Rob this question forever. You know how, like, when we have like like a group of crows is called a murder? Yeah, sure. Can we have a in Star oh. Wars a, a group of Orbacks be called a Jerry? We have a Zach- Jerry of Orbacks. <laughs> <laughs> Zach does not understand the can of worms he has just opened. <laughs> because Zach, just, Zach, as everybody just heard less than a minute ago, Zach described this phenomenon of naming a group of animals by describing the example of a murder of crows. And there's a bunch of them. A school of fish, a gaggle of geese, murder of crows is a good one. The word for a group of animals, Zach, is officially called an animal collective. God damn it. That is lit. When you talk about a murder of crows, you are describing the animal collective for crows. A school of fish, the animal collective for fish. What was your question again, Zach? I got sidetracked because you brought up animal collectives. Oh, a Jerry of Orbox, yes. The animal collective for Orbox in the Star Wars universe is the Jerry. I love it. A can Jerry we, of Orbox. Can we update Wikipedia with this, like right now? <laughs> you try. Okay, someone needs to send a DM to J.J. Uh, Abrams. We have an idea. <laughs> Jerry of Or. How is Orbach spelled in the Star Wars universe? I think it's O R B A C H S. Oh my God, that's I think Jerry Orbach's last I, name. <laughs> I could be wrong. I could be wrong. Okay, I haven't gonna, looked it up. I'm going to Google right now a Jerry of Orbach. <laughs> We're going to see what comes right up. in the Knights of Vader Facebook group. So at least Jerry Orbach comes up first. That's perfect. That's promising. Uh, his Wikipedia, and then his IMDb, and then his biography on IMDb, and then his biography on biography.com. <laughs> Sounds good. Okay, Jerry like Orbach. I love me some Jerry Orbach. Be our guest. Check it out. All right, Rob. Unless you have anything else to say, uh, Cinemati and or Late Night Movie. I'm ready. Uh, Cinemodities? Hard no. Late night, hard no. Uh, a documentary, I, I was thinking of this in terms of both of them. Documentaries, I think, have a tough time for me getting on either of these lists. I did not go back and look at the November series because I know we covered a lot of documentaries there. Um, but I this did not do anything for me in terms of late night. I don't think I could show this to anybody and get any good conversation other than Zach. <laughs> uh, and 
Cinemodities, this is just a documentary about Disney, as far as I'm concerned. So I'm saying no to both. What are your thoughts, Zach? How are we splitting oh, on this? Oh, we, we're going to split major. I um, think Oh, yeah. Cinemati, absolutely. Possibly the greatest. Uh, again, not like a eraser head or an elves level, but in the context of uh, understanding Hollywood and how it works, it's indispensable. We need this. Um, there's a good chance that Cinemati's might not even exist without this film. So there you go. And then as of late night movie, I think we, sh- we I've already said it. Uh, Post coitus viewing of Waking <laughs> Sleeping Beauty is mandatory. Oh God! Oh God! A Zach, a Zach version of a sext is somebody taking a picture of a copy of the DVD, being like, "December plus and chill." If if after having sex with somebody in my own place of residence, I put this movie on, I would leave. <laughs> like I would leave them alone and be like, "We, I, I think I have to show you this movie for some weird reason, but I don't want to watch." It. <laughs> what happens is I bring it to other people's houses, put it on, then they leave, and I get to keep their property. <laughs> it's an elaborate ruse of gaining property oh, in low at low values. <laughs> the big game at King of the Hill. <laughs> exactly. Oh yeah, folks. Oh, this is God. if if I ever meet you in real life, there's a good chance I have like this DVD. You know what we're gonna do? We're, like, when Rob's not looking, we're gonna take the copy of the freak DVDs at the restaurant. We're just gonna be like, oh, like when Rob's not looking, just replace them all with a copy of uh, Waking Sleeping Beauty. Oh my God. Rob checks on it periodically. He's like, what the hell? Not again. <laughs> not again. Get <laughs> out of here, you. <laughs> Zach, we've spoken about this. That's good. That's good. That's good. There's no sense of, of routine at the Cinemodities restaurant because you and I are constantly pranking each other with things. <laughs> uh, all right, Rob. I have a question. Considering, like, did you have any snacks for this? Ooh, ooh. Ooh, Zach, I actually, I'm so glad. I want to start with snacks because okay. while... The whole time. I took notes. I watched this whole movie. You know, I didn't cheat on my, or didn't shirk or cheat my duties and cinemodities at all. Throughout the whole thing, I was looking, I was thinking, even during this conversation, I was thinking, I have no snacks written down. <gasps> but do you know what I have, Zach? What do you have, Rob? What's the ace up your sleeve? I have a Slim Jim. <laughs> and I literally told Zach I had this Slim Jim about two hours and 23 minutes ago. Hey, kids. Correction corner. That mention I made about telling Zach I had a Slim Jim two and a half hours ago, that actually happened three and a half hours ago. In fact, a peek behind the curtain, the first thing I said to Zach when we got on our Skype call today was that I had a Slim Jim. We like to have fun here on Cinemodities, even if Rob and Zach aren't the ones experiencing it. And I'm going to eat it now, and that's going to be my snack. So everybody, while Zach gives his snack, listen to the glorious ASMR of me <laughs> eating an original flavored Slim Jim. Are you ready for this? Here we go. I'm just doing it. No, no work. Mmm. Mmm. <laughs> <laughs> This is this is what you do while you're uh, watching mm. it after CODIS. You eat of course after CODIS. <laughs> you eat the sleep. It's meat that doesn't have to be refrigerated. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what else to do. I love Slim Jims. I haven't had one in years. That's all I got. There was no, no got... food in this movie in the slightest. I would love oh, to know I, if you I, had anything. Oh, I figure we have like lion burgers or something. 
<laughs> I actually like that. That sounds pretty good. Lion burgers. Got the cubs. Like, like we, we kill the little Simba things and cook them up. Well, it's up to you. I think that I think that's just easier to get than the giant, like what seven hundred pound, like king of the jungle. But hey, if you want to go for the big game, who am I to stop you? Mm. <laughs> 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 All right, because obviously snack. Considering that, like this is a rather short episode, and uh, we're light on snacks. Rob, do you want to? Do we want to explain to our audience what I think? We did we ever mention what happened to the candy store from the Avengers Endgame experiment on the actual recording? No, I don't think you know what we, we want to do with it. No, I, yeah, I All guess. Right. Um, so, yeah, we should. Uh, so at the mall that Zach and I frequent or frequently talk about, uh, want, frequent for Zach, frequently talk about for me, um, the candy store that we referenced heavily, heavily during our Avengers Endgame experiment series is now closed, just gone, vanished out of the blue one day. Right, Zach? Pretty much. Yeah, like the the big, massive fucking uh rice krispies bar that was radioactive is just gone (laughs) yeah uh, nobody saw the forklift to take it out of there nobody knows where it went there's no we gotta bring the geiger counter next time (laughs) yes so i believe currently the uh the working idea is that since not only you know a little bit after the avengers endgame experiment did it become empty it's still empty to this day and that's what what four months yeah, it, em- it emptied. Out, I I think it emptied out sometime in late July. So yeah, we're talking about like four months now at least. So clearly, the only choice of action is to rent it ourselves. Correct? I I think that again, folks. When I saw it was empty, I took I took a picture and sent it to Rob. And his immediate response was, "Go find the mall manager and offer him a deal about us taking <laughs> the spot." Like we are recording folks. studio, yeah. So, folks, we, we are thinking about the real-world application of the Cinematis restaurant. And I think Rob had, a, a, before recording this, in the two hours beforehand, we were talking about what a real-life Cinematis restaurant would look like. Or, I'm mm. sorry, a real... <laughs> how got, I, got a lot of, I got a lot of Slim Jim, man. There's that much least. still... How big is this thing? I don't know. I mean, it says it has... Six grams of protein. Sure. <laughs> does, that, does that help? I'm trying to find a weight, but I ripped the package so much to get oh to it God. that I can't even see it. Oh I don't even God. Slim Jims are, are legally required to say how much they weigh. <laughs> anyway, though, so in this 0.97 ounces, oh my God, 27.5 grams, and I got like a quarter of it left. Oh my God. All mm. right, Rob. <laughs> Rob continues to enjoy his Slim Jim audibly. Um, in the in this in the uh, this vacant candy shop, and keep in mind, folks, it has like the pink and white swirls. Like you can tell what this was at one point. And what Rob suggested was we rent the location and we put our recording studio in toward like the back. Mm-hmm. We gotta build the like the uh, producers bay, like the. Like the, um, you know, for the sound mixing, everything kind of separate. Like it'll be our two tables for recording. Maybe three if we want to have guests ever again. Probably not, right? Fuck them. So two <laughs> tables. And then you got like behind some glass, kind of, you know, the recording bay to kind of mix everything. It's going to be a professional operation. Nothing short of what our audience deserves in the quality, right? <laughs> exactly. But as we were kind of like further fleshing out this idea, 
Rob came up with the idea that considering that we have such a large space, why don't we put tables in the front and have <laughs> chairs and make it the Cinemati's restaurant at the same time? But we have menus. Again, we have menus, yep. but we don't serve any food. Yep. And I, I believe we also said that we would have um, someone play a waiter who would take orders, but no food would ever be delivered or made. No. <laughs> So you would sit there. So like Rob and I would be in the back and two, we do not have any sort of like barrier between the recording studio and the tables in the, what the threshold into the mall. Mm -hmm. So as we were trying to record an episode, people would be coming in trying to order food miles. And all while this is going on, just the overall, just foot traffic of the mall in general. (laughs) And we're going to have all this while we're recording. And like Rob said, while we're recording, people will be coming up complaining about where's their food. Where is the the glory hole caviar fountain? And we'd be like, shut the F up. We're We're trying to record. Yes. (laughs) I love the idea of just, you know, maybe the restaurant would open at a certain time, maybe 11 AM people would just be, growing angrier and angrier as they come in and thinking they're customers to this place we would start recording at say 2 p.m that afternoon so you know three hours after this place opens i'm doing air quotes (laughs) and you know as we're getting settled in one of one of us i I say one of us probably me would scream out over the rest of the room can everybody shut the fuck up for room tone we need to get room tone thank you (laughs) and that people are just like i ordered onion rings (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's what we're doing folks it's happening it's finally happening and it's giving nothing short of glory just scream at any room (laughs) that we need them to shut up to get room tone i feel that that's very that would be very satisfying could we could we could we just rent a spot in the mall and get like lawn chairs and just scream at people walking by like, do you like, like, can you rent a spot in the mall without the intention of selling it? Like, do you have to sell anything just because you rent a spot in the mall? Uh, ooh. I feel like as long as you pay the, the rent, then no, right? You just get a spot. Like, exactly. We could build a kiosk for like fucking $25 <laughs> and just stand in it. And no, that's not, like, that's not as fun. It has to be, has to be a storefront. It has to be a storefront. Well, fair, I wanted, fair. so like, so, you, okay, this is the question is that like, you could just be some sort of rich a-hole pay the like, ex- like exorbitant price for a storefront and then just like, what? Yell at people. Oh my God. You know what? You know what I just thought of? You know what? I would bet there's something. It's like the homeowners association, but oh. for your stores at malls. So those stupid things fucking organizations that are like you need to keep your grass this length and blah 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 they're the same people or have a same outlet that are going to malls and being like your store needs to have this level of you know non-sexy mannequins <laughs> needs to has this level of you know clothing shown and blah 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 there's probably some stupid rules we're not aware of that would ruin this experience for us we can and, fake you know, that. maybe maybe ruin this experience but at the same time Open the two of us to using our snarky mindsets <laughs> to create a whole new experience to yes. ruin the mall homeowners association. Well, God, this is like a new, this is like a new kids movie. We I guess beat the mall homeowner, the store <laughs> owners association. So what you're saying, Rob, is that we have the Cinematis restaurant, and again, bringing this back to Disney, we're going to have the Cinematis store, like a Disney store. 
<laughs> yes, that will slowly rebel against and take <laughs> over the mall. Yeah. There we go. We figured it out. We ha- <laughs> see see that's that's perfect, Rob. Cinemati, this is the snack. It's not a snack. Disney has the Disney store. Cinemati's restaurant has the Cinemati store. Perfect. Perfect. Where you where you two can buy copies of a uh, free t- uh, you can you can buy a little like miniature uh, glory hole caviar fountain. Yep, Slim Jims. <laughs> That's one of the more conventional items. <laughs> the bot cyanide. You can buy cyanide there when you're trying to watch uh, the the Dark Crystal. Yes. Yep. Yep. It comes in a set of fake teeth. <laughs> Perfect. Fake molar. Fake molar. Perfect. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> Oh dear. No oh. no age restriction on it in the slightest. Perfect. 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 All right, Rob. Hell, are we still recording? <laughs> <laughs> Damn right we are, Rob. That's all the beforehand nonsense that we didn't get on tape. We talked about be our guest, right? I think that's the last Disney yes. thing we mentioned. <laughs> yes. All right, Rob. Uh considering that you really don't have any sorting uh any sort of meaningful Say I don't want to say say, but any sort of meaningful opinion on this? May I choose the ending music in reverse for this week's episode? Oh fuck! Oh whoa, whoa! Okay, I retract everything. Zach, <laughs> talk to me for another three out. Wait, hold on. Talk to me for another hour and a half before Law and Order's Vu comes on to get me to become a Disney expert where I can choose the ending <laughs> reverse music. No, no, of course, Zach. You. This is. I think. Um, if we didn't mention already later on in this series or as we go through this series, it'll become more of like what we are used to on cinemodities with, you know, commentary on movies rather than history as this episode I think was, but I dig this conversation, Zach. I'm glad we had it. I'm glad we got it out there. I think this was a, a a good type of literature review into the history of Disney. So of course I will hand it over to you uh, to pick what we play in reverse as long as it is the cinemodities intro in reverse. How, what do you no, think? No, no, <laughs> Okay, no. fine. Then I guess you get your choice. <laughs> I'm going to play from the thing we're going to be talking as, as a hint. I'm going to be choosing one of the songs from next week's episode in reverse. Okay. Okay. Perfect. Perfect. I'm lost. I'm lost. You. I'm lost on this episode, Zach. You broke me on this episode. This went I did, everywhere. Folks. I won. I won. This is like Thanksgiving 3 Part 2. <laughs> we oh talked God. about it all. 